Back to Basics 2.0 Intraoperative Cardiopulmonary Arrest by Julie Kahn A cardiopulmonary arrest in the OR may present unique challenges. For example, an open wound, the sterile field, a non-supine patient position, when compared with the same event occurring in a non-perioperative environment. In addition, restricted and semi-restricted zones and perioperative departments may hinder access for personnel responding to an emergency situation from outside the OR. Preparing for perioperative emergency management begins with education and a thorough preoperative patient assessment. Rapid identification of cardiopulmonary arrest with an effective response to the escalating situation, can positively affect patient survival. Perioperative and responding personnel should assume a role in code management that is consistent with their abilities and training, perform high-quality cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, or defibrillate as needed, and identify and treat the underlying cause of the patient's deterioration. Before the Coronavirus Disease 2019, COVID-19, pandemic, the survival rate of individuals who experienced a cardiac arrest in a hospital had been increasing. According to 2019 data, the in-hospital cardiac arrest survival to discharge rate in the United States was 26.7% in adults and 42.3% in children, versus an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survival rate of 10.5% in adults and 11.3% in children. During the COVID-19 surge from March 1st to May 15th, 2020, the adult in-hospital survival rate decreased to 19.6%, and during the immediate post-surge period, that is, May 16th to June 30th, 2020, the rate climbed to 22.3%. However, These rates did not include patients with confirmed or suspected COVID-19 infections. A review of 2020-2013 data in the National Anesthesia Clinical Outcomes Registry showed the associated mortality from intraoperative cardiac arrest was 58.4%. Cardiac arrest survival rates in ORs may be higher than those in other hospital areas because perioperative personnel almost always witness such arrests and are familiar with the patient's history, initiation of treatment may be faster, and the underlying causes may be more easily determined. A focused review of special anesthesia-related circumstances that contribute to intraoperative cardiac arrests included severe anaphylaxis, pulmonary embolism, hypertensive crisis, trauma-related arrest, malignant hyperthermia, tension pneumothorax, severe hyperkalemia, and local anesthetic systemic toxicity. This article discusses basic concepts for preparing for and responding to intraoperative cardiopulmonary arrest situations. Advanced cardiac life support processes for adults and children, open chest cardiac resuscitation, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, ventricular assist devices, massive transfusion protocols, processes for blood product administration, and interventions specific to malignant hyperthermia used during patient resuscitation are beyond the scope of this article. Practice Point Emergency Preparedness The Joint Commission indicates 
that emergency management involves preparedness, response, recovery, and mitigation. Management of patient care emergencies, such as intraoperative cardiac arrest, may be enhanced when perioperative personnel are well prepared. Perioperative RN should maintain basic life support certification in accordance with the requirements of their role, their job description, and the healthcare organization's policy and procedure. Some facilities and positions, such as RNs administering moderate sedation, require advanced resuscitation training, such as advanced cardiovascular life support or pediatric advanced life support. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services requires that, quote, the following equipment must be available to the operating room suites. Call-in system, cardiac monitor, resuscitator, defibrillator, aspirator, and tracheotomy set, end quote. After completing life support requirements, perioperative personnel should participate in additional education activities that address how to apply the principles to practice, such as a simulated cardiac arrest. Personnel should participate in competency verification activities during orientation and then routinely as indicated in the facility's policies. These activities may include 1. Identifying the locations and contents of emergency carts, for example, code cart, malignant hyperthermia cart. 2. Identifying emergency airway supplies and medications. 3. Demonstrating proper use of airway equipment. 4. Demonstrating proper use of available defibrillators, that is, both automatic external and manual. 5. Performing a simulated cardiac arrest response in the perioperative setting and other locations in the facility. For example, hallway, cafeteria. 6. Performing the specific tasks associated with their expected role. And 7. Reviewing applicable policies and procedures for patient emergencies. For example, cardiac arrest. Use of simulation and team training with a debriefing can increase knowledge and strengthen the performance of an individual or team during an actual event and should be used during the education sessions and competency verification processes. When planning for a patient's procedure, personnel should conduct a patient assessment, including 1. Review of the past medical and surgical history. 2. Classify the physical status according to the American Society of Anesthesiologists' physical status classification. 3. Review any existing do-not-resuscitate or allow natural death orders. 4. Document discussion about suspending a do-not-resuscitate or allow natural death order during surgery. 5. Determine the anticipated risk of blood loss based on the procedure and patient history. 6. Discuss the patient's willingness to receive various blood products if necessary. 7. Identify an informed consent that covers administration of blood products. 8. Review laboratory test results for ordered blood products, for example, type and cross-match. 9. Identify the availability and location of ordered blood products. And 10. Anticipate the need for additional equipment or supplies. For example, an autologous cell salvaging machine, a rapid infuser machine. Patients have the right to self-determination 
and involvement in making informed decisions regarding their medical care. During their admission process, patients must be asked if they have advanced directives and documentation of any specific instructions regarding their care. Healthcare personnel must implement all legally valid advanced directives recognized by state law. Patient discrimination based on the presence or content of advanced directives is illegal. According to U.S. federal regulations, quote, hospitals must maintain written policies and procedures concerning advanced directives with respect to all adult individuals receiving medical care, end quote. Despite recommendations against automatic suspension of do-not-resuscitate orders for patients undergoing operative or other invasive procedures, some organizations continue to retain policies that allow for the automatic suspension of these orders. Anesthesia professionals, for instance, may assume such policies exist at their facility. Additionally, many healthcare personnel have reported that they lack education on the care of patients with advanced directives, despite federal mandates for such education. When discussing the patient's wishes regarding the use of blood products, it is important for personnel to avoid assumptions, treat all patients as individuals, and respect their concerns. Perioperative personnel should not assume that a patient who is a Jehovah's Witness will refuse all blood products. Rather, They should ask if the patient will accept administration of allogeneic blood products. If the patient says no, they should clarify if all types of blood products are unacceptable or only specific types. If a patient declines to receive allogeneic blood products, perioperative personnel should ask if the patient will accept autologous blood through the use of a cell salvaging device. After confirming the patient's wishes, Personnel should document the information in the patient's health record and share the results of the patient assessment and discussion with the surgical team members before the procedure, for example, during a briefing, during the timeout. The information should include the patient's requests regarding do-not-resuscitate orders. Practice Point Management of Cardiopulmonary Arrest Healthcare organization policies and procedures should provide guidance for the management of cardiopulmonary arrest. Rapid identification of an event in progress and promptly calling for help is the first step. Identification of an intraoperative cardiopulmonary arrest can be challenging based on the 1. Physiological changes induced by anesthesia, for example, respiratory changes altered mental state. 2. Surgical processes preventing access to the patient, for example, drapes position. Or 3. Environmental factors present in the OR, for example, poor lighting, noise, potential for false alarms. The process for calling for help varies among facilities, for example, code button, designated phone number, notification of the charge nurse or attending anesthesiologist. But the Joint Commission recommends using plain language to clarify the situation during emergency response alerts. After identifying a cardiopulmonary arrest event and calling for help, personnel should initiate CPR and obtain a code cart. The team leader should be clearly identified 
after all expected personnel have responded to the emergent event. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation involves CAB, chest compressions, airway management, and breathing, to ensure adequate patient circulation and ventilation. Each component of CPR has quality indicators. For example, compression depth and rate, chest recoil, associated with the delivery of high-quality care. Personnel should review and demonstrate these skills during the certification course. Early defibrillation for patients with a convertible heart rhythm is crucial. Therefore, one perioperative team member should initiate CPR, while other team members should deliver effective compressions and ventilation continuously, with personnel changes as needed, until a team member places the defibrillator pads and is ready to activate the defibrillator. That is, calls clear to maintain personnel safety from the shock. After initial efforts to provide CPR, early defibrillation, and pharmacological support are underway, the American Heart Association recommends that the co-team leader perform a primary and secondary assessment. The primary assessment includes an evaluation of the effectiveness of the CPR and factors that may affect resuscitation. Considerations include the airway, breathing, circulation, potential disabilities, for example, neurologic function, and exposure. For example, remove clothing or drapes to determine the presence of any trauma medical alert bracelets and unusual markings. The secondary assessment involves identifying the underlying cause of the code and then eliminating it or mitigating the associated effects. Personnel should initiate post-arrest care when it becomes apparent that the patient has had return of spontaneous circulation. Practice Point Roles and Tasks of Perioperative Personnel The AHA outlines six distinct roles in two categories for cardiopulmonary resuscitation team members. The three resuscitation triangle roles are the compressor, airway manager, and CPR coach who also operates the monitor or defibrillator. The three leadership roles are the code team leader, IV access and medication provider, and timer and recorder. The roles and associated tasks of perioperative team members during a code may vary based on individual skills and the healthcare organization's policy and procedure, and should be clarified during competency verification. The anesthesia professional may perform the code team leader's responsibilities or defer to a responding individual when they arrive. Maintaining the code team leader role while also managing medication administration, managing the patient's airway, and drawing blood for laboratory testing can be overwhelming for one individual. Therefore, it is important to clearly identify the code team leader and assign tasks after additional qualified responders arrive to the OR. Together, the anesthesia professional and surgeon should determine whether to continue or stop the procedure. The role of the RN circulator involves calling for help and notifying personnel outside the OR of the emergency. They also may retrieve the code cart if it is easily accessible or direct a responding team member to do so to allow the RN circulator to remain with the patient. The RN circulator also may help reposition the patient when necessary.
Although personnel can perform CPR and defibrillation when patients are positioned prone, the AHA recommends that healthcare professionals perform high-quality CPR when patients are positioned supine on a hard surface or have a backboard placed under their back. The team should perform any required patient repositioning without delay. To facilitate the initiation of CPR for patients in the prone position, a perioperative team member should obtain the patient's bed or transportation cart before or when they obtain the code cart. The RN circulator may direct responding personnel to fill the role of runner and expedite transport of laboratory test samples, obtain needed supplies, and perform any additional tasks that may be required. For example, obtain medications. The presence of additional personnel should allow the RN circulator to fulfill their patient care responsibilities. For example, control OR traffic, run the defibrillator, perform or monitor CPR, document the care provided, complete perioperative nursing tasks, according to the facility's policy and procedure. Depending on the procedure, the care being provided, and the effect of such care on the patient's condition, for example, a nicked artery that causes a hemorrhage, the surgeon may continue to perform surgery to treat the cause of the arrest or control bleeding, or may assist with chest compressions or internal defibrillation. The surgeon also may attempt to close or cover the wound. If surgical interventions are not needed, for example, surgery has not begun, the surgeon may assist with chest compressions, fulfill the team leader role, or perform other tasks as needed, for example, repositioning. The scrub person is responsible for maintaining the sterile field and an awareness of the location of the sterile instruments and supplies to help prevent retained surgical items. If the sterile field is not actively being used, the scrub person may cover any or all of it to maintain sterility. The scrub person should anticipate the needs of the surgeon regarding wound closure, packing, or covering, and request additional supplies if necessary. Generally, scrub personnel maintain sterility, but may be called upon to perform CPR. Depending on the facility, additional personnel may be present or respond to a code and can assist in different ways. Individuals in the first assistant role, for example, surgical residents, physician assistants, RN first assistants, may perform chest compressions or other tasks, for example, obtain blood samples, as directed by the code team leader. The nurse manager or charge nurse who responds to a code can control OR traffic and allocate additional personnel to various roles, for example, runner, second RN circulator. They also may coordinate patient care activities, for example, facilitate patient transfer to an intensive care unit after the patient is stabilized, assist with post-mortem care when necessary, and move subsequent procedures to another OR. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation is complex in all hospital settings, but it requires specific considerations when performed in the OR. Some healthcare organizations designate a group of individuals who have demonstrated competency in code management to respond to any cardiopulmonary arrest in the facility. These individuals may enter the OR from different parts of the healthcare facility, for example, the intensive care unit, 
and may not normally wear surgical attire. For example, scrub attire, head coverings, or surgical masks. The use of these items is intended to protect the personnel wearing them, maintain the sterile field, and reduce the patient's risk of a surgical side infection. During an emergency, increasing the patient's chances of survival takes precedence over maintaining the sterile field. The expectation that responding personnel will change into surgical attire or don a coverall, for example, bunny suit, before entering the restricted area may delay timely patient care. One possible solution is to request that personnel who are assigned to a code response team don surgical attire at the beginning of their assigned shift. Stocking disposable bouffant head coverings and surgical masks with ear loops on the code cart also may facilitate faster response times for individuals working in other parts of the facility. The healthcare organization or perioperative department policy and procedure should clarify the expectations for the responding code team members donning coveralls, surgical attire, and surgical masks in the OR, and these should be balanced with the patient's need for timely care during an emergency. Electronic access to the perioperative department may be a barrier for non-OR team members responding to a code. Therefore, perioperative leaders should collaborate with facility leaders, for example, security, nursing, laboratory, to ensure all responding personnel have access to the perioperative department during their assigned shift, which may include the hours after scheduled procedures and weekends. When intraoperative code activities result in a severely compromised sterile field, and many of the personnel in the OR are not wearing surgical attire or masks, the surgical team members should address the issue at the end of the procedure, for example, during the debriefing. They should determine if a major break in sterile technique occurred and, if necessary, change the surgical wound class to contaminated, three, if it was originally clean, one, or clean contaminated, two. Conclusion. Intraoperative cardiopulmonary arrest and code management is a complex patient care event. The chance of patient survival may increase when personnel are prepared and know how to perform high-quality CPR and function effectively in the various roles of a code team. Healthcare organization leaders can help perioperative personnel by providing resources, simulations, and clear policies and procedures on the expected interventions to be used during intraoperative resuscitation events. This Back to Basics 2.0 article contains three knowledge checks. I will now read the first knowledge check for the practice point, emergency preparedness. Zachary, a perioperative charge nurse, is in an OR assisting with preparation for a liver resection. He obtains a cell salvaging system and begins to prepare the device for use. He also directs Matthew, the anesthesia technician, to retrieve a rapid infuser device from the storage room so it is ready to use. Dorothy, the RN circulator, finishes preparing the OR and reviews the medical record. She notices that the patient, Mrs. O, has a history of severe cardiovascular disease that may affect the risk for blood loss during the planned liver resection procedure. Dorothy reviews the preoperative orders and notes 
that there are two units of packed red blood cells available for the procedure in the transfusion services department. She notes that Mrs. O has signed an operative consent and has an advance directive in effect that indicates she declines resuscitation. Dorothy interviews Mrs. O in the preoperative holding area and asks her about the planned procedure and acceptance of blood products. She learns that Mrs. O does not want to receive any blood products. After initial discussion, Dorothy confirms that Mrs. O understands the risk of blood loss associated with the procedure and the ramifications of not receiving allogeneic blood. She asks Mrs. O if receipt of autologous blood using a cell salvaging system would be acceptable and immediately realizes Mrs. O does not understand the difference between receiving allogeneic and autologous blood. Dorothy notifies Dr. N., the surgeon, of the situation and requests that he come to the preoperative area to discuss the blood loss concerns with the patient. He agrees and arrives a few minutes later. Dorothy then pages Dr. G., the anesthesiologist, about the advance directive. However, before she receives a response, Zachary enters the preoperative area's nursing station and asks Dorothy why Mrs. O is not yet in the OR. When Dorothy replies that she needs to discuss the advance directive with Dr. G, Zachary tells her that Dr. N is ready to proceed and that advance directives are not applicable to the OR. In this scenario, who did not follow the practice point? A. Zachary B. Matthew C. Dorothy or D. Dr. N. I will now provide the answer. In this scenario, Zachary did not follow the recommended practice point. I will now read the second knowledge check for the practice point, management of cardiopulmonary arrest. During a vein-stripping procedure, the patient, Mr. Y, experiences a dysrhythmia with a subsequent significant decrease in pulse rate and blood pressure. Dr. H., the anesthesiologist, immediately notices the changes and states, quote, Mr. Y is in cardiac arrest, end quote. Tay, the RN circulator, abruptly leaves the OR to obtain the code cart located at the end of the hall. Dr. W., the surgeon, directs Klein, the surgical technologist, to prepare to close the wounds. Meanwhile, Dr. K., the surgical resident, doffs her outer sterile gloves, pulls back the drapes from Mr. Y's chest, and begins performing chest compressions. In this scenario, who did not follow the practice point? A. Dr. H. B. Tay. C. Dr. K. Or D. Klein. I will now provide the answer. In this scenario, Tay did not follow the recommended practice point. I will now read the third and final knowledge check for the practice point, Roles and Tasks of Perioperative Personnel. Ms. L. was transferred from the trauma department for an emergency exploratory laparotomy after a motor vehicle accident. During transport to the OR, she experienced a cardiopulmonary arrest and the dedicated facility code team initiated CPR. As she is positioned on the OR bed, Dr. X, the anesthesiologist, briefly discusses the situation with Dr. D, 
the code team leader. The two physicians agree that for continuity of care, Dr. D will remain in the OR and continue to serve as the code team leader. Dr. X informs the perioperative team of the decision. Dr. D reviews the team member assignments for the required code roles in the OR. The code team members serving in the recorder and defibrillator role and the medication administration role state that they can remain in the OR to assist with resuscitation. The team member performing chest compressions requests relief, and Bastian, the surgical technologist, immediately does so. Zaria, the RN circulator, continues performing perioperative patient care. In this scenario, who did not follow the practice point? A. Dr. X, B. Zaria, C. Bastian, or D. Dr. D? I will now provide the answer. In this scenario, Bastian did not follow the recommended practice point.